Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you like today's show, please consider sharing us with your friends. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's episode. Today's guest, Marissa Thalberg, has successfully guided some of the country's most iconic brands, including Lowe's, Taco Bell, and the Estee Lauder companies, through incredible transformations and really eye-opening journeys of self-discovery. Thalberg is one of those rare leaders who really does know how to create a psychologically safe space in which everyone around her feels comfortable sharing their thoughts and solutions. In her view, only through collective genius can organizations drive innovation and brand value. So I hope you'll enjoy today's conversation with Marissa Thalberg. So Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you're one of the greatest marketing experts and branding gurus in the entire country. What what is a brand and like what is your role as a chief marketing officer in helping companies create a better brand? I love that you start with that because it's a topic about which I've become passionate because I do think there has to still be um, in a big leader, an intuition, an expertise, a sense of what it means to tap into the essence of a brand, to find that, to carve it out, um, and to see a big North Star, a big vision. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that's one of the things I, I enjoy doing most is making sure that while everyone is in the trenches doing the day in and day out work of driving the business, that that can't be the whole story. And and if you toward what end? And it's been interesting for me to see even very sophisticated companies be so in the operational executional parts of the business, including marketing, that you know, that that need to pull back and really say, what's a motivational, audacious goal for us to really achieve in terms of what we want the brand to be along with what we want the company to be? And how do you stair step your way there? But how do you also look at something bold and then say, well, if we want to get there, here's how we're going to reverse engineer. And those two processes coming together is for me the ultimate way of driving progress. And I mean, let's talk about some tangible examples. And you've worked at some of the coolest consumer product brands in the country or even the world, Taco Bell, Lowe's, Estee Lauder. I mean, tell us maybe a story or two from, let's start with Taco Bell. Yeah, I love talking about Taco Bell. (laughs) I love love eating there. So it's probably probably your fault. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Imagine if we could get a headline that was the hottest restaurant or the hottest reservation in the country is dot, 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 Taco Bell. I love the tension in that and the unexpectedness. And you know what? We effectively got that headline. How? Because we, well, we did a partnership with Open Table and we realized that people saw the headquarters in their minds as, as like a Willy Wonka you know, going to the factory. And of course it was a corporate office building in Irvine, California, but we did have this test kitchen. And so we spiffed it up and we opened the test kitchen for like an exclusive dinner reservation that you could book through open table. We promoted it. The reservations were gone in 30 seconds. People got on airplanes to fly to dinner. Now imagine that, think about what that represents when truthfully, being fast food means you're accessible, you're easy. It's it's not elite. It's not 
um, you know, unattainable, it's highly attainable, but this idea of creating a cachet like that, that made dinner at Taco Bell so desirable that people would buy plane tickets to fly to it. To me, that's an amazing example of creating a sense of growing the cult of Taco Bell, creating cachet while still selling the food and selling, you know, all the benefits. Was that the genesis for some of these real high-end Taco Bell? I forgot what they're called, but I see them all over Manhattan now and other places. What What is that called? Those are called cantinas. And I, I would, no, not exactly. I, it's cool that you think they're high-end. I really, um, there were two things going on in what you're seeing there. Cantina became our designation for restaurants that we would serve alcohol. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a big difference, starting with um the restaurant that we launched with a franchisee, a really fantastic franchisee on the Vegas Strip, by far the most successful single Taco Bell restaurant now. And, and we it, did- it figures, all that's the, it figures that's the one that I call out. It's the, the, the Taco Bell that serves alcohol. Exactly, the- exactly. But you know, it's interesting because- Taco Bell's been the butt of late night comedian jokes. And it's funny, but it's really not from a brand image standpoint where you want to lean. And I personally felt as in my tenure stewarding this brand that you got to lift it up a little because you don't really want the bathroom jokes. And imagine now you're introducing alcohol. I mean, it lends itself to some of the worst stereotypes of the brand. And so the fact that your perception, and I give my colleagues credit for doing, you know, beautiful restaurant design and operations. I mean, it was really at the time a collective thing, but we did something so cool in that Taco Bell Las Vegas cantina, which is we introduced weddings in that. I mean, again, so unexpected, but, but all part of, you know, and that location does weddings now year round. It's so funny. You know, in reality, it's a very competitive environment. And we've been talking a lot about Taco Bell, but the great thing is we can apply this to when I was in beauty or CPG or big box retail. Yeah. Would you mind? So just maybe briefly just sharing some high level stories uh, in big box retail or in beauty, because I'd love to hear some of the similarities and differences. Well, I believe that one of the things I enjoy most is connecting dots that other people don't see. If I have any gift in in my work, it's that. And I think when I went from luxury beauty to Taco Bell, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to point out how those are dissimilar. For me, it was more interesting to say, how do I leverage some of my experiences from that to this? And then of course, learning all the new parts. So thinking about, I mean, they're both industries or categories rather that sit in culture. Beauty fashion is a part of culture. Food's a part of culture. They're both about, um, in this case, in my mind of craveability, you know, when you think about how women feel when they're, you know, passion products and my goodness, since I've left beauty and the advent of TikTok and my younger daughter was just telling me the other day when she went shopping for cosmetics and the products that she wanted that had been recommended by some really big TikTok store uh, stars are sold out everywhere. So, whoa, I mean, you just think about that. I also feel like in going from luxury to mass and big box retail maybe sits a little somewhere in between that, probably closer to mass, thinking about how you create a value proposition. And that's been one consistent thing I've tried to bring in a, a, an important lens to in the organizations in which I've worked is to disassociate value from price alone, 
because we all know it's not just about price and value as much as sometimes companies try to make it rational is totally not rational. It's the math we all individually do in our heads that we may not even be aware of to say, is this worth it? Mm -hmm. So when you think about all the dimensions of what makes something worth it, it becomes the most fundamental thing we do as marketers in a way is building the belief with the consumers you wanna reach that yes, it's worth it. So um, as much as I've never really thought of myself as being brave, I think I've had to have a certain amount of bravery to go into these situations, willing to be different and willing to express things that might make some people uncomfortable because change, I mean, this is about as trite as I can be, but change happens outside our comfort zones. And some people are better with that than others. Why have you not thought of yourself in the past as courageous when, in fact, you know, and everybody know, around you knows that you're coming up with big, new, creative, bold ideas for the brand? That's the, the definition of bold. I'll tell you, and particularly as a woman, I think that... Um, I have some historically feminine tendencies. And I say that in, with no you know, sense of bias, but just really understanding that we all possess masculine and feminine traits. And as an aside, unfortunately in the past, some of the better feminine traits were maligned as leadership traits. And I think that we need to increasingly understand that some of these are really positive in modern leaders, men and women. But, you know, one of my traits that has, uh, you know, kind of run against my desire to be bold is wanting everyone to like me, wanting to be a pleaser, wanting to make other people happy. I mean, those traits do not necessarily work for someone who is going to be big and bold and courageous because there is this inevitable tension that occurs when you're disrupting things, when you're not just saying, hey, the status quo that you've had, yep, that's great. I'm just here to maintain it. That's not what I do best. I also, in fairness, want to say, I don't think a good leader comes in just to blow it up to show that they're blowing it up. I think the real art is knowing how to come in and assess and say, you know, maybe that is, is okay the way it is. Let's keep it for now. This is actually great the way it is. Fantastic. Going to lean in, whether that's structure, talent, um, strategies, and then really seeing things for what they are and saying, you know, maybe that got you here, but it's not going to get us here. And we've got to think differently. And in my experience, it's always a bell curve that there are the early adopters who jump on board and, you know, you just want to love and embrace those people. The big part of the bell curve are the people that when they see others following will kind of get on board. And then you have the tail end of the bell curve, which are the people who are resistant. And depending upon how resistant and how influential that resistance is can be the more painful part of being an agent of transformation is how do you get those people to also come along? And if you think about, you know, uh, some of these, what you call feminine qualities that have been okay. traditionally maligned, um, definitely, you know, this idea of being a people pleaser, but what about some other soft skills that have traditionally not been looked at very positively, but in fact may actually be very important. Well, fortunately, there is increasing literature in academia that you know people who really study leadership increasingly recognizing 
uh, the importance of a different view of what are the, the strongest traits for leadership. There have been some great books written. My friend Amy Stanton wrote, wrote a great book called The Feminine Revolution that really points out some of the traits like intuition, compassion, empathy. I mean, these are skills that tended to be uh, or are tended to be considered feminine traits. But the point is, and I really want to underscore this, men and women both possess masculine and feminine traits. This is just how they've been categorized historically. Yet um, we are not as far along as I would have hoped in terms of breaking that traditional, more patriarchal archetype of leadership in spite of the fact that the world is so different now. And I believe that digital and social media revolution is at the core of why it's changed because who possesses the power and the knowledge is not just this vertical thing anymore, this top-down thing. And because I was at the forefront of that, I think it really made me understand how to empathize with people who were very established leaders who felt incredibly threatened by this new world where the young people knew more than they did. And what did that mean in terms of their confidence and leaders? And um, and then even more recently, like as, as we all had to think about leading through COVID, leading through these unique situations. I mean, I would hardly say my approach and in the spirit of this podcast is highly imperfect, but at the same time, I mean, I think I've really become someone who believes that um, infantilizing your team and, and doing that thing where it's like, well, they don't need to know or just tell them what to do. People don't want to be led that way. People want to feel like they're spoken to with integrity, with a sense of being honest about the realities of what's going on. They want to know the why, not just the what. And they want to trust their leaders. They just want to trust their leaders. It doesn't mean you have to say everything at every minute, but it means they have to they have to believe you and believe in you. I lean in with trust and I lean in with communication and really try to get to know each other. And I'm also willing to make fun of myself and let other people make fun of me because I think in a funny way, that's part of creating intimacy. And I had um, an executive in one of my past lives ask me uh, why we were getting a certain positive result with creative from a certain ad agency when another one of the companies in the, in the portfolio was using the same agency and not getting good results. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a rhetorical question. It really wasn't. And I said, well, let's think about then what must be the difference? Because the difference is then not the agency. The difference is are 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 we are the two different companies as clients inviting them to take risks empowering them to put you know big bold thinking out there is that encouraged or is that really is there a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk and i think that's how teams feel too i also think there are times as a leader where you have to be the one to say hey this is the, i'm making the call and we're doing this way but if you don't at least then invite the debate um, it becomes, and, and I've experienced this. And for me, it's demotivating when you feel like you're just, just taking orders, then what, you know, what's the point of having diverse voices mm -hmm. at the table if you don't really care to listen to them? Um, 
So, so all of that for me has, has influenced, I think, my own personal philosophy on leadership formed by good experiences and formed by bad experiences. So I love what you're saying here, Marissa, and I love, you know, that you referenced Amy Stanton's book, The Feminine Revolution. But if I think about some of these traditional feminine leadership qualities, like you said, intuition, compassion, empathy, making fun yeah. of yourself, creating intimacy. I mean, do men get this? You know, and you've worked with some male CEO bosses and a lot of other men just in general, um, or do they feel like they need all the answers and you know, in charge and not be vulnerable. Well, of course, there's no way of generalizing that, thankfully, across an entire gender. I will tell you, I've I've worked with and experienced some amazing male leaders who do, um, in a way, to me, it's a sign of ultimate confidence to have the ability to show your vulnerability. And I Why? don't think that was well understood in the past because big leaders seemed invulnerable, seemed impervious, seemed unflappable. And we, you know, we, we, that's how we glorified, you know, a, a leadership archetype. And I think for me, it's quite the opposite. As I've gotten more confident, I'm more willing for people to see the flaws. I'm willing to say I was wrong. I'm willing to make fun of myself as we've joked because I think that creates the authenticity. I really do. And, and is that um, the same, like, do you have more respect for the men leaders with whom you work that show that same vulnerability? I personally do. And I find it much easier to either, whether it's me being led or others being led to feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, because I think there's a, a still, and for me, this is a dated style of leadership that believes power comes from being mercurial, from being unknowable. Um, and by the way, there is some truth to that because it's an intimidation factor. But why? Why? Why do? Why is it? Um, is that celebrated today when it's hard enough? It's hard enough, and if you trust your team then you should trust them to feel known. And because we all want to be known. I mean, our base needs are in, as humans really so consistent. We want is to that why, Is that why safety is so important? And I mean, tell me more about like the intersection of creating this safe space and people being known. I, I think so. And I'll, I'll speak now specifically as a marketer um, where part of the role is taking risks and being you know, creative. And we can talk about what that even means if you want. But, um, and the visual metaphor I always use when I talk about this in presentations is I show a picture of someone walking a tightrope. And I do feel like for me, that's been a very vivid visual metaphor for being a bold leader mm -hmm. is, you want to walk the tightrope and because that's how the magic of, of the circus happens. However, if you were to fall, you don't want it to be a mortal blow. Literally, you want to know that there's a net so you'll get back up and walk. And that for me just says everything about the safety part is you know, you want safety is is knowing that you're encouraged to go walk the tightrope because there's a net under you. 
Now, obviously, you can't keep falling over and over and over again, or you're not a very, very good performer. <laughs> but um, that to me is the idea. And it's been very visceral at points in my career when I, I really felt the presence of a net under me or when you stop feeling that net. And one of two things happen in that situation. You, you know, you wind up leaving the circus, so to speak, or you wind up even worse, just not wanting to get up on the tightrope. And I mean, so you can take the metaphor all the way through. That's not where the greatness happens. It's just not. But as the C chief marketing officer, you, your role in a way was to create, you know, the desire for people to want to walk that tightrope, to be able to do it effectively and to most importantly, yes. make sure that they understand that there's that net underneath them. Yeah. I mean, look, all metaphors have their limitations, but for me, this is a, a near perfect one with regards to why safe, why a certain degree of safety matters. And, and safety also is really, in my mind, inextricably linked with trust. It doesn't mean that um, everything's always going to be rah, rah, perfect. It doesn't mean hard conversations can't happen. It doesn't mean change. Um, but that there's a feeling of, you know, feeling safe to go for it. Mm -hmm. That to me is really, really important for me as someone who's being led and for me as a leader leading other people. And, and I love this conversation about le leadership style and genders. Uh, you talked about your kids. How has being a mom impacted your leadership style and even your own core values of what's important to you? Has it made you a better leader? Oh, I, I think so for sure. I mean, one interesting, you know, piece now of my background that I think has really been um, a consistent thread of passion since I became a mom myself, you know, 22 years ago was soon after that I, I was in New York and I thought, my goodness, there must be resources for other working moms like me. And there was shockingly nothing. And so I wound up starting an organization to support working mothers. And I ran that on top of my own corporate career. And of course, on top of now being a mom for many, many years, um, and it became a real resource, both in New York and, and nationally. And I kind of did the, really the, most of it myself. And so I became a real voice for the women that I was now kind of trying to support, but also representing in terms of a few things. One, there's a lot of negative mythology about working mothers and my experience of becoming a mother and also really being driven to succeed in my professional career made me think differently about how those narratives need to change, made me think differently about what we need. Um, and what I found, and this was really the insight for executive moms is accomplished women are doing it better than they think, but we still plague ourselves with guilt and doubt. And there's an, oftentimes a lot of isolation. And if I felt that way in New York, I thought I can only imagine for those women doing it in places in the country where the majority of women don't have big professional careers. So what I realized is it wasn't Women weren't looking for some pedantic, like, here are the five ways to manage your life better. Um, they were looking for something much more simple and fundamental, which is camaraderie, shared experience, a little bit of, of 
wind in their wings of, of, oh my gosh, see, like, look at these women, they're all dealing with it too. And we're all doing okay. So it became very practical, but also very emotional. At the same time, I think from doing that over the years, I still feel a real sense of determination for and empathy for women in the workplace who are still running up against some of the, um, you know, unfair biases that I'd love to just put a beautiful gloss on this and say we've come so far, but we have a lot of work to do in terms of how women are judged as leaders. We really in, do. In what way? And so can you give me an example of like how, um, say, a, a way that a woman, a, preg a pregnant woman would feel guilt or shame or isolation? And would they even like be nervous about telling their employers that they're pregnant? Of course, that was one of the early articles I wrote. And, you know, my guidance was try to put yourself in the leader's shoes for a moment. And you have to now apply empathy that um, presuming you're really valued, that there's probably a quick mental process in the mind of the person you're telling of, wow, I'm so happy for you. And oh my goodness, what's go how am I, how am I, how's it going to impact me? How's this going to impact the team when you leave? And so just being able to conduct that conversation in a way that is allowing them to share your joy, but also thinking ahead to, I've already given some thoughts to when I go on leave, here's what I'm going to do. It does just, it just actually represents you as a woman who's saying, committed to this amazing turn of events in my life. And I'm also really committed to this company, my role, et cetera. So, um, but, but we put a lot of onus on women. We put a, a lot of, and we, we talk about, I mean, I don't want to get all soapboxy about this because oh, this could is go great. This, this is topic for hours, but you know, there's, we still talk about, you know, maternity leave almost as like a vacation. It's not. If you've ever birthed a child, it's not. Exact opposite. It's really not. And, uh, you know, most other countries are a lot more progressive about this, but forgetting even the maternity leave just when you're back and, and balancing and juggling. And, and I think um, the, really the only answer is communication. It's really the only answer. Some people navigate it easily and wind up having the right support system with childcare, family help, and other people really, really struggle. But beyond the mother part, I think there's just the women part. I was reading an article just the other day and I realized it was an article that came out a few years ago, but, and it was from a big firm. There is a word that shows up significantly more in they audited all the performance reviews of like senior executives, women and men, and they found this statistically significant difference that the word abrasive showed up far and away in more prominent women's performance reviews than ever in men's. I think it's because we judge strong women more harshly than we judge strong men. So, so what can men do better in this process? You said communication was so important, but um, that's not, that's an easy word, but it's actually hard to implement in what, how do you create a forum where the women and the men can communicate about some of these topics? I mean, I think, you know, everyone has to just check their bias and, and, you know, the problem is we all think we're self-aware, but oftentimes the more senior you get, the less, you know, the less self-aware or just aware 
that you become. And um, boy, I'll tell you, if I have one pet peeve word that's right up there with abrasive that's ascribed to women who are passionate when they do, it's the idea of emotional. I mean, there are just some things that really put a bit of a kiss of death on women in leadership in a way that is that, and I, I really didn't mean for this interview to go in this place of like, I, you know, it sounds like, oh, angry woman. See, and I'm not, I, I actually quite love working um, with great men and great women. And I've had the opportunity to do both, but when, when it works, I think there's just an approachability and honesty, a humor, and therefore a bit of a safety in being able to communicate with different styles and different ideas. And when that comes to the table with real mutual respect, I'll, I'll call it work friendship, right? It doesn't have to extend necessarily outside of the walls of, of the work world, but a sense of just that camaraderie, knowing that the big competition is outside of your walls and not within that's when the magic happens it it just does it, is it a total lack of self-awareness on the part of men and maybe even women when they call other women abrasive and emotional and i can tell you know that it's a trigger for you and i guarantee and, and i know for sure because i've heard it from other women that it's a trigger for them and they'll yeah. say you know that the, a man can do the exact same thing or worse, and not be termed abrasive or emotional, yeah. which is sort of expected. So, you know, I just don't, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. I, I think, frankly, any underrepresented group has some challenge in overcoming un unconscious bias in the workplace. We can extend this to why diversity, I mean, for me, what it really speaks to is why diversity matters. And I think sometimes I wonder if um, big, especially big public companies that are under pressure to show diversity are have lost, like, what's the end game? Like, what's the real reason? It's not to check boxes on a report. It's what's the reason to want diversity? The reason yeah. to want diversity is it makes, it's proven that it makes you better when you're not just a bunch of all like-minded people from similar experiences, whether that's similar upbringing, similar just industry experience. Like you've all been taught the same thing the same way. It's comfortable, but it's not necessarily where, you know, newness that can unlock more possibilities happens. So this is really my point about the power of of women, I want to open this to say it's more than just women. It's about diversity in its best sense means creating a tent where um, you have the best, brightest people, highly qualified people. I mean, that has to be the common denominator, but their experiences are different enough that that, and, and there's a willingness to really talk th through ideas and debate in a constructive way that allows new opportunities, new thinking to find its way to the table. In um, full circle, you know, as chief marketing officer, as someone who's the steward for that brand, that's, you know, for someone that's trying to drive creativity and innovation, you can't achieve that goal unless you actually realize the benefits of diversity in the way that you're describing. Yes. And listen, it's human nature to want to surround yourselves for me too. Like, you, you know, we feel comfortable with people that, feel most like us. So that's the real push for all of us. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not positioning myself as being, you know, 
a, a perfect leader, a perfect person in this regard. But but when I step away and think about when it's best and what that looks like, it's always been as I've as I've built teams, a combination of people that have been there a long time and have the institutional knowledge, for example, with new people that bring fresh ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just one example of the most basic form of professional diversity, right? And you said that, you know, as you get further along in your career, ironically, you actually become less self-aware in some ways. Why is that? This goes back to an earlier question is just how do you stay curious about how things are changing? and everyone has their, you know, hidden baggage and their unconscious biases and their, you know, opportunities for improvement and self-awareness. I mean, does it really start, in your view, at the top of the house with the CEO and the chief marketing officer to really do the hard work necessary to understand, you know, your own self-biases? Otherwise, how are other people going to be inspired to do the same? A hundred percent, it does. And and then that's about what kind of culture are you creating? You know, as you say, the the title of the podcast is Imperfect Leaders, and we've talked a lot about self-awareness. Yeah. What are as proven and as you know, as decorated as the top chief marketing officer in the country, what are some leadership things that <laughs> you're that working makes me, that makes me bristle because you know, whatever, but thank you. So I'm gonna go. say it. You didn't say it, I said it. <laughs> but, what are some things that you're working on to become an even better leader? <clears throat> well, I think the fact that I've thought of my career, I've had to come to think of my career in chapters and I've made these big, bold moves and I've taken chances and I'm in a transition of, you know, soon to make another one again. So it, it just, it makes me think of when I was a kid and I, um, I was going into fourth grade and I'd had a really bad experience the year before. I mean, I don't think we called it that. But I was really bullied <laughs> as a kid and my parents did what they didn't think they would do. And they moved me to a private school. And the moral of the story is totally happy ending, incredible, all, all great. But I remember my dad uh, driving me to the first day of this new school and just saying, this is like a whole clean slate. Like you get to write a new beginning. And I think what he was effectively saying is you get to take everything you learn from that, but now show up with all that behind you and be the next best version of what you can be. And I, I think about that um, consciously or not, that each new chapter is an opportunity to reset, reflect, um, it's one of the advantages of chapters and think about the experiences that have shaped you. And unfortunately, we've all had negative ones as well as positive ones, but the, the, the way those become meaningful is finding the meaning in them, turning them into lessons about how you were your best self and when you weren't as a leader and how you can continue to grow and improve and be even better going forward. And I, I, I think like you got to care about that. I guess for me, I really do care about that. I care about when all is said and done with work, the, the feedback that has meant the most to me in my career is from the people that have worked for me, with me, that, you know, feel that I've really touched them and I've changed them for better. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate gratification. And I wish it were more people and more moments, but 
but there have been enough that I feel um, that that has been a metric of, of personal success for me. And that would be the goal is just keep building on that. But to, for every chapter, you know, whether you've moved to Taco Bell or to Lowe's or to Estee Lauder or this new chapter you're about to write, do you think yeah. back upon what your dad told you when you moved schools? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not something that's top of mind with me every day, but as we were talking, that's the thought that came into my head. And it's poignant to me because I lost my dad when I was 20. So just to have that memory um, and have that influence stick with me is kind of extra meaningful because he never got to see me as an adult. He never got to see me as a professional. So I think it has an extra note of sentimentality attached to it. I think it's also probably the most important leadership lesson or personal lesson that I've tried to also instill in my daughters is resilience. You know, life is life, careers, always going to have challenges thrown in our way and our ability to find our strength and bounce back from those things and emerge somehow stronger and better. Um, that's a leadership lesson, but it's also frankly just, uh, you know, about how we, we grow as just individuals. And so um, I think in a way that was also what he was telling me is you came through something hard and now you're going to be better for it. Marissa, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to attend and join deep dive discussions, please visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.